0: Well, stand with me as we read our sermon text. This morning, you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. It's a text you can find on a chairback Bible in front of you on page 887. We come to uh, the second half of John chapter 2 this morning as we're going to look at verses 12 through 25. So let me uh, read that portion for us and then pray that... The Lord blesses our study and we'll continue on together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you this morning through his perfect word. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and he stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all of them, from the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. They do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we ask that as we come to your truth this morning, you would stir within us a heart that longs for your salvation, for your word is our delight. That even our hearts would know that more than delight in gold and silver, we would rejoice in the testimony of your Son this morning. And so give us by your Spirit understanding in your truth. For you are our hiding place, Lord, you are our shield, and give us life according to your promise in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Not long after his inauguration, a, a local newspaper spoke about Teddy Roosevelt in a very tiny column that began with a sentence that simply said, now here is a good story about our new American president, and the source for the story was a sexton at Madison Square Church in New York, who had recalled times past when Roosevelt was a young boy, and there was one time in particular where he had come to Madison Square Church on a morning when the church doors were open, and he was staring into the church, and the church worker said, well, why don't you come on in and and check it out? And the young Teddy simply ran away at the invitation to come into the church. And evidently, this happened a few more times in the next few months. And it came to a point eventually where young Roosevelt told his mother about what had been going on. And she said, well, yes, it is the Lord's house, Teddy, but you shouldn't be scared about going in and looking quietly about. But he said, mother, the zeal is there. And she understandably said... The zeal? What zeal? And he went on to say, Well, I remember a pastor reading about the zeal eating people in the church. So it must be some sort of dragon or alligator. And as you would imagine a mother would do with some degree of curiosity, she pulled a concordance off of her shelf and she began to read to her son verse after verse in the Bible that speaks about zeal. And eventually she read a verse... And young Roosevelt cried out, that's the one. Psalm 69 verse 9, which in the authorized version would sound like this. For zeal for thine house has eaten me up. (laughs) Zeal was scary to one young boy. And it's something that we need to recognize today as we come to see the zeal of Jesus Christ. That zeal from the Savior can be a genuinely terrifying thing because if you've been with us in recent weeks what we have seen and even left off with last week was the first of what John called the signs of Jesus Christ these these miracles these displays of his glory and majesty that were windows into the truth of who he is and and kids I hope you remember what was the sign that we looked at last week it was when Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding we said it was there that the water noticed its creator and blushed it was this sign of the bridegroom has come the old is passing into the new and the real bridegroom has come and he's inviting people like you into his eternal wedding feast and if that sign there at cana was all about joy what we see in many ways is another sign that is on the opposite end of the emotional spectrum The very next one that the Apostle John was to put before you in the life of Jesus Christ is not a sign of of joy, but it's a sign of judgment upon the temple and those even within it. And so as the, the circle of knowledge about Jesus, you might notice this, is expanding out in these early chapters of John. We saw it first belonged to just John the Baptist. Then it was five disciples who followed Jesus. Last week it was this family wedding feast. Well, now it's breaking out into the holy city of Jerusalem at that festival week of Passover. People are finding out who Jesus is. And what they're finding out is that the zealous one of God has come. So that's the theme that I wanted to put before you today is the zeal of Jesus Christ and Uh, I suppose, students, it's quite good for us to reckon from the very beginning what zeal is, because it's what we're going to think about along the way today, what zeal is according to God's Word. And probably the simplest way to illustrate it is actually using the word that's used in the New Testament Uh, for zeal. It's a word that pictured in its ancient form the bubbling over of water at its boiling point. So what we're trying to notice along the way today is, what makes Jesus bubble over? What makes Jesus even boil in his purity and intensity? So there's three things we're going to notice about the zeal of Christ today. The first of which is this. What zeal does. So you glance back to verse 12 of of chapter 2. We're told that Jesus goes down to Capernaum with his family and disciples. And you don't want to erase through these transition verses too quickly. Not only does it move us from one geographic location to the next, but what we know from the other gospel writers primarily is that this place of Capernaum, it was the home base for Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so what we see is that the Lord Jesus was prepared for 30 years, a training in the truth of God's word, and then he showed up for three years in his earthly ministry. But it wasn't a ministry that was full of unceasing, uninterrupted labor as often as people think it was. Jesus was prone to disappear intentionally from the crowds. He was prone to go back to a home base for rest. He was prone to detach himself to these quiet places of solitude where he might pray and commune with God. And I hope that you might have your own Capernaum in your life. That as the Lord has called you to your specific work, there's a place that you can go. And frankly, there's a place that you must go to rest, for for strength, for an enlivening of your spirit before the Lord. And he didn't last very long, evidently, in Capernaum. It was only a few days. And then you'll see verse 13 tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so Jesus went up into Jerusalem And kids, I hope you know something about Passover because you need to know something about Passover and even just the Passover festivity in Jerusalem to understand what exactly it was like when Jesus would have arrived in that holy city of Zion. So kids, you might remember, I hope you know, that Passover, it happens originally in the book of Exodus. It was the final plague that God sent upon Egypt that God used for Pharaoh to finally at long last let his people go. It was a visitation that brought salvation and God's word to his people was every single year they were meant to commemorate this visitation that brought them salvation. So what you would have is is Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world. They would ascend up to the city of Jerusalem for this feast of Passover, a feast that was immediately followed by the feast of unleavened bread. And so when Jesus would have walked into Jerusalem at that time, the streets would have been unusually crowded. The stores would have been unusually chaotic. The temple itself would have been in a way it wasn't at any other time in the year quite chaotic, and altogether raucous, And in a way that no one would have expected, what God is doing here at Passover is bringing another visitation that's going to point to the ultimate salvation. Because you see what Jesus finds in verse 14, those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. We don't know for sure from this passage, but it seems altogether likely that Jesus walks into, at this point, what would have been a 35-acre complex known as the Court of the Gentiles, the place where Gentiles were allowed to go, and if they went too far into it, they would come to a sign that basically says, do not pass on pain of death. But in the passing years, these merchants and money changers had overtaken this part of the temple complex. For really convenience purposes. Because when these pilgrims would show up for Passover, they were supposed to bring animals to offer as sacrifices to God. And the leaders there in Jerusalem realized, well, it's, it's, it's good profitable business to just have animals on hand for people to buy right there when they come into the temple. So they don't have to bring them on a long journey up the hill to Jerusalem. And not just that, when you came into the temple, you had to pay a temple tax and it had to be in the correct currency. So you bring currency from your local village or your local land and you have to change that at an exorbitant exchange rate into the temple currency. So Jesus is walking into the temple and what greets him is nothing more than exorbitant, excessive desires for worldly wealth, And the accommodation of convenience. Well, in 1511, there's an unknown monk at the time, Augustinian monk, named Martin Luther, who makes a a pilgrimage to his holy city at that time, which was the city of Rome. He walked straight, children. Well, not straight, but for 48 days straight, he walked from where he was to Rome, And it was said when he got into Rome, he fell upon his knees with tears on his eyes and said, greetings, O holy city of Rome. Such was his expectation of what he was going to meet there. But that expectation quickly fell into exasperation as he went around the city. Now, what struck him was not the genuine devotion and fervor of the church in that place as much as it was the corruption, the greed the excessive wealth of the church. He went to all of these services that were offered as fast as possible in order to make as much money as possible. And so later on, as he looked back in his life upon this, what he thought would be pivotal moment, it was a pivotal moment in large part because he was absolutely disgusted at the blasphemy that met him. And there's something there even in old Luther's disgust that surely mirrors what Jesus felt in that moment. Because you'll notice what he does in verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And you can surely imagine, can't you? you know, If you were there like many, so many pilgrims were at the time, you, know, you were coming that morning into the temple complex. And as you get closer and closer, you hear a loud noise. And as you get closer and closer, you see something like a stampede of animals and people racing out of the temple. People crying out something like, there's a madman on loose with a whip. And then you get closer and closer. And what do you hear? Surely, screaming, shouting. You hear tables being turned. You hear coins being splashed about. Why? Well, Jesus speaks, doesn't he, for the first time in verse 16. He tells those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And even that language, it's just filling up the prophecy of Zechariah 14.21 where it says, in that day there will be no traders in the Lord's house. And many Christians, don't you think, you read just a few verses like this and you see what zeal does in the life of Jesus Christ and you almost nod within your heart, don't you? Serves them right. But the text says he came, and you'll notice again the language, particularly at the beginning of verse 14, he found something in the temple. Every time... And we gather on the Lord's day. We know by his word and spirit Jesus is present with his people in this place of worship. What do you think he would find in us? How many churches today gather simply because of preferences? Conveniences? Traditions being met? Just like it was back then in the first century. And Jesus says... This is not how it's supposed to be. Even we know as the gospel narrative advances that Jesus has these confrontations often with the religious leaders who are soon going to interrogate him. These religious leaders who essentially say, yeah, but we've got all the forms of worship right. We've got the sacrifices. We've got the offerings. We've got the right worship. And what does Jesus say? Sure. But your hearts are far from me. Why would you think I would receive that worship. And could it not be true that the Lord Jesus might find in many of you this morning a desire to worship the Lord? Forms might be right. Elements might be biblical. But the heart is far away. Don't make my house, my Father's house, like that. And you'll see what the disciples realize and remember, verse 17, that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. You, you can tease this out in a variety of different ways with a variety of different texts, but throughout the Old Testament, a zeal for the Lord its this principal part of, of piety, of what it means to truly love the Lord. You can think of this singular text where you have God has commissioned this man named Jehu to basically be his instrument of execution upon Ahab's house. And Jehu's going about that story, and as he's in his chariot one day, he comes across a man by the side of the road who's similar in his heart and similar in his soul, and Jehu reaches down, if you know the story, grabs his hand, pulls him into the chariot, and says what? Come, and I will show you my zeal for the Lord. Would you be able to grab someone by the hand and say, Come, let me show you my zeal for God. Well, the language here, of course, it comes from Psalm 69, verse 9, which we said earlier, zeal for your house uh, will consume me. And it doesn't mean what I think a lot of people would believe it means on the first reading, which is zeal is this all-absorbing, all-consuming spiritual reality in Jesus' life. Because that's true, but that's not what Psalm 69, verse 9, actually means. In context, Psalm 69 is a psalm of David saying that his zeal for God's house is going to lead to his death. Enemy, opposition, reproaches on all sides. The disciples are realizing something very early on in Jesus' ministry, that maybe David's true and greater son likewise will be consumed, will die because of his zeal for God's house. And if you know anything about the sham trial that belonged to Jesus some three years later in his life, one of the principal charges that was levied against him was his zeal for God's house, that he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And that's where we go next, not just what zeal does, what zeal declares, because look what we're told in verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? we 've noticed already in john chapter one haven 't we where John the Baptist was doing things in the name of the Lord, and so of course there 's this interrogation that came to him, this delegation of the Jewish leaders that essentially said to john the baptist what 's your sign john what 's your authority uh, what sign do you give for your for your identity and I love one of one I, I love what one of my Favorite New Testament commentators says about the question here in in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. He simply says, and rather bluntly, this request was stupid. And he says that for a reason. Because the cleansing of the temple itself was the sign. These very leaders would have known their Old Testament prophets well. They should have known that Malachi chapter 3 said, a time is coming when God would send his messenger to cleanse the temple, to purify the worship, to purge the false priesthoods. There was a sign displayed majestically before them. And they come along to Jesus after seeing it, after observing it, and say, Jesus, what's your sign for doing what you just did? It's almost as though you would want to think Jesus could look back and say, the sign was what you just saw. But he doesn't say that. Look at what he says, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And you would think that these religious leaders would just suddenly be looking at each other in the face. You know what? what did he just say? Commanding us, raise the temple to the ground, which the next verse says took 46 years to build. And in three days, he's going to build it right back up. They wanted a sign. They didn't like the sign they were given. And they didn't like it because they didn't believe in the sign that they were given. We know throughout the New Testament that the Jews were a sign-believing bunch. Uh, They always were looking for signs. You might be that kind of a person, couldn't you? An ordinary week comes and you pray to the Lord and ask unto the Lord, Give me a sign of, of your guidance. Give me a sign of, of your direction. Give me a sign of, of your favor. Give me a sign of your compassion. Give me, give me a sign that you are with me. And sometimes the Lord doesn't he come along and gives you a sign, and you miss it all together, just like they did. But it's not just the Jewish leaders who miss the sign. You notice the disciples themselves missed the sign on that day in Jerusalem so long ago. Look at verse 21 and 22. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it took them something like three years to remember what the sign was actually about. Better said, it took them something like three years to realize what the sign was actually about. I was with a member in our church sometime late last week and he was walking me around his backyard showing me some, some new fruit trees that he had planted. And I asked him, how, how long uh, until fruit would, would show up on those trees? And he said something like four years until the fruit arrives. I want you to take encouragement even from the disciples and the Lord's sovereign grace in their life there in in verse 22, maybe even especially for some of you mothers on a Mother's Day, that so often God plants seeds of truth in his people's hearts, and it might be years into the future, that they actually begin to realize what's there. They actually begin to understand what's there. They actually begin to comprehend what's there. Maybe you've been praying for many years for a child that's gone wayward. Lord, help her understand what's there. Or a son, make him understand what's there. Zeal's doing something. Zeal's declaring something. Notice now the zeal of Christ, what it discerns. You see, we're told in verse 23, now he was in Jerusalem the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You see the word there, uh, students and children, for signs is plural. So evidently Jesus was doing other things there at Passover in in Jerusalem. We know even from the very last verse in John's gospel, John says, if I wrote down all of the signs that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to record everything that, that Jesus did. But whatever he was doing, whatever he did, had elicited some kind of faith in the people. That some people, they were believing in him. But but strikingly, the chapter ends by John telling us, Jesus didn't believe in them. As you see what we're told in verse 24, on his part, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man so often in the gospel accounts we find these stories of people saying they believe in jesus but their lives ultimately proving that they don't and more often than not in the gospels what what is happening is people see these powerful signs from christ and what they really are believing in is jesus to get more of what he gives not so much to believe in jesus for who he is It's speaking here about the divine discernment that Jesus has, that he knows exactly what's in man's heart, and it provides the link, and Lord willing, we'll we'll even get to see it next week, because you see how it stretches just into the next phrase of chapter 3. It says that Jesus knows what is in man, verse 1 of chapter 3, Now there was a man named Nicodemus. Just as we'll see next week, he knew Nicodemus needed to be born again. He knows these people don't really believe in him. So he doesn't entrust himself to them. And I wonder what that truth about the all-knowing, all-seeing discernment of Jesus Christ does to you. You sitting here today, don't you? And hearing this truth, he knows every motive of your heart. He knows every desire of your soul. He knows every longing of your life. He knows every profession of faith that's really not true. He knows every profession of belief that is completely sincere and genuine. I wonder if his all discernment comforts you or convicts you. Because, of course, for for false Christians, it's a terrifying reality to know that he sees through it all. And maybe that's you. But it's a comforting thing for true Christians, for morning, noon, and night, they long to live under the gaze of a watchful Savior because you have nothing to hide. And maybe even today you realize you've been hiding something, thinking he didn't notice, thinking he doesn't see. The text is telling us the zeal of the Lord discerns everything. The zeal of the Lord declares a coming resurrection. The zeal of the Lord cleanses a temple. That's what we're meant to see about the zeal of Jesus Christ. I was with a local pastor not long ago, and we we were talking over a meeting about situations in his church. He's been in the midst of of a difficult time, and particularly with some difficult people. And so toward the end of the conversation, he said something like, I think it really has come to that time. And I said, time for what? Uh, And he said, for a come-to-Jesus meeting. And maybe you've been around the church long enough to know that Christians often use that phrase, sometimes irreverently or sometimes reverently, uh, for a come-to-Jesus meeting, uh, about this, this time of confrontation that needs to happen. And I hope you realize that every time you walk into the truth of John's gospel, what you arrive at, is a come-to-Jesus meeting. But there's a confrontation with the Son of God through the very pages of Scripture and by the application of it through His Spirit. So I want to show you three different ways that this text confronts us as we come to an end this morning. First, Jesus confronts us with His emotion. Jesus confronts us with His emotion. The same Lord in the first sign that was full of all joy is the same Lord in the next action full of terrifying judgment. Uh, Years ago, I read this wonderful little essay by a theologian named Benjamin Warfield. And the essay is just called, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he rightly points out that there's this diversity and fullness that belongs to the Savior's emotions. And if he, he says, if you want to come to the places of our Lord's indignation, all you need to look at, he says, is the accounts of the cleansing of the temple in Christ's ministry. There's an old hymn that's titled, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. And, and that's probably how many people today prefer to see Jesus. The Lord of love, this man of mercy, uh, this king of kindness, but, but to encapsulate him only in that kind of a box is to miss out what our text says is true too. That he's the judge of justice, that he's the ruler of righteousness, that of course he likewise is the king that brings punishment. The zeal of the Lord of hosts brings about his judgment upon unbelief. And so it's for us this morning to be confronted with the reality that we can't keep him within this emotional box, thinking that he only relates to us how we want him to relate emotionally to us. He relates to you how emotionally he discerns. He must relate to you and has decreed that he must relate to you. He confronts us with his emotion. Number two, he confronts us about the location. And what I mean by that is what we saw last week is that in, the, in Jesus Christ's ministry, particularly in these first few chapters of John, we, we see these singular occurrences of, of the old passing away into the new. So there was this old water that passes away to the new wine last week. And today it's the, the old place of worship now, now passing to the to the new place of worship, something that will be fully on display by the time we come to chapter four. But it's more proper to say is that the old Place of worship, the temple, is passing to the person of worship. For who is Jesus but God's dwelling place with man? It belongs to people like us to not care so much about the building, but the builder, knowing that it's through Christ Jesus that anywhere and everywhere we can meet with God. This place is a house of worship, not because there are walls and a ceiling. This place is a house of worship because his people are here. And where his people are, gathered under the word, called together by the Spirit, there Jesus is with him. So he confronts us with his emotion, confronts us about the location finally. He confronts us for a decision. In the same way that John always brings confrontation with Christ... John, uh, perhaps in a way that's singular in his writing. Every single text is calling us to a decision day. Because there's a sign that's given to you. You might be in here today looking for a sign. And has not the Lord given you a sign that a Savior has come? Perfect, faithful, thoroughly obedient to God's law. Knowing right from the outset of his public ministry that it was always and only going to get to a place where he was going to die. Die as the sinless sacrifice. As the spotless substitute. And because he was such a savior, death had no claim on him. He would rise again. Here's your sign. And you must, like those disciples eventually did, you must believe the scripture. You must believe the word that Jesus has spoken. Words about a visitation that is coming when he returns. A visitation that for some of you, if you reject him, will be a visitation unto your condemnation. But let today be the day where you believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus spoke in so that visitation is one of an eternal salvation found in the presence of a Lord full of zeal for his father and for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we would not be slothful in zeal, that our spirits would be fervent before you, that we would serve you this day with faithfulness and obedience, that our hearts would be full of that intensity of holiness that belonged to your Son our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we do want to sing about that death and resurrection, that sign that's ours of salvation in Jesus Christ as we turn our bulletins to our hymn of response. is printed there for us, The Power of the Cross.